Be seated. I'm a sports lover. Anybody else? Just You can put it out there. You're not alone. But I've been thinking how it's, it's possible, possible even for a believer, but especially for folks of the world, to put more confidence in their sports team than we put in, in God. Let me give you an example. How many of you watched game one of the NBA Finals? Boston Celtics, Golden State Warriors. Love the finish because we despise the Warriors because of what they've done to our Cavs in the past before we finally got them. The Celtics won. But I was reading an article this morning that there's an 18-year-old Boston Celtics fan who has a tattoo on his arm. You know what it says? Boston Celtics, 2022 world champions. He's got some confidence going there. <laughs> now, at first I thought that was after the game one win. Turns out he got that in March. Now, his confidence may or may not be well-placed. We'll see how that all plays out in history, right? But I thought about that confidence, and I thought, man, what if believers in Jesus Christ had that, that kind of confidence and then some in the promises God has made? to us about who we are in Christ. How would that change the way we live out the rest of our days? How would that help us experience the freedom that, that Jesus came to purchase for us? What if we had a tattoo on our souls, believers in Jesus Christ, that said, I am a son or daughter of God? And we put all our confidence in that promise that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of Christ. Would you live different? Amen. Why am I talking about that? Because in today's passage, Galatians chapter 4, Paul is going to bring out the point that people of faith in Jesus Christ are sons of God and by extension, daughters of God. And we got to unpack some things because it may not be apparent in English, but where Paul's coming from in Greek, when he says a son of God, that is different than a child of God. Believers in Jesus Christ are both. But what does it mean to be a child of God versus what does it mean to be a son or daughter of God? That's what we're going to get into. But people of faith are sons and daughters of God. But first, I want to talk about who people were, who we were before Christ. Okay, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. And as we go through, I want you to ask yourself, especially believers, are you living as a child of God or a son or daughter of God? That'll, that'll come more clear as we go. 4, verse 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, the heir of, of God, the heir of the estate in this case, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now just think about this in human terms. I don't know if Elon Musk is married or if he has kids, but let's say he did. Let's say he has a five-year-old boy, okay? That five-year-old boy is the heir of the Musk estate. Is, is 
Elon Musk going to wake him up in the morning at five years old and say, hey, guess what, son? You get to go out and drive the Teslas today. No. He's five. Okay, is he going to say, hey, son, you're the heir of the estate. I'm going to give you the contracts for some important deals with Twitter and some other people. I want you to go negotiate those. No. Why? He's five. Is he the heir? Yes, but he's a minor. He's still under likely other employees of Elon Musk keeping an eye on him and, and disciplining him. That's why he says though the heir, as long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave. Though He's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3, he says, In the same way, Galatians, we also, when we were children... We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what in the world is he talking about spiritually here? What does it mean for them to be children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? That's a mouthful right there. It comes up twice in Galatians and once in Colossians 2. Most bring it down to two likely possibilities. What are these elementary principles that they were enslaved to? Well, many think back to how the empire thought at that time. There are many who thought of the elements of the world, you know, earth, wind, fire, and beyond those elements, the, the gods who controlled those elements. And this would have been true of the Galatians because they worshiped some of these false gods before they came to Jesus. You remember Acts chapter 14, verse 15? What, what was going on? Paul and Barnabas show up there. They, they heal a guy. They start preaching. And all the Galatians, hey, it's Zeus. It's Hermes. Let's bring them some sacrifices. And they keep bringing these piles of sacrifices. And what do they say? Acts 14, 15. Paul and Barnabas look at them and say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, Zeus, Hermes, these false demonic gods, turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And they did. They, they turned from those elemental principles to the true God and, and, and trusted in him. He says, we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's who it was for the Galatians, but who was it for Paul? Did, did Paul grow up under Zeus and Hermes? What did, what did Paul grow up under? He grew up under the Jewish law. And this gets to the other side of that, that meaning of elemental principles. It could also be referring to the ABCs of the, the law that came through Moses. Why did we say God gave that law last week? Somebody's got to know. What was the, just the, the core answer? Why did he give the law? To lead? What's that? <laughs> My right ear's bad. I'm sorry. He, he gave the law to show us that we need a Savior. We can't keep that law. That's the most central reason. That's why we can refer to it as the ABCs of law. In fact, later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, 
I want you to listen to what it says in Hebrews 6, 1. This, this should have been elemental, elementary, ABCs to the Galatians that you can't get saved by keeping the law. Listen to Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What is the elementary doctrine of Christ? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Dead works don't save you. Have faith in God. That's elementary. Okay? He doesn't want them to turn back to that. In fact, in Acts 15, as the early church in Jerusalem was wrestling with, should we impose the law of Moses on Gentile believers? You remember what Peter said there, Acts 15.10? He said, hey, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, these Gentiles, that, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's taking an honest look at their history, saying, guys, how many times have we blown it? And now you're trying to enforce that on the Gentiles? Where did he go on to in verse 11? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We were children under those ABCs or those elemental principles, but something happened to change that. An earth-shattering transition. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Galatians 4.4. What's it say? But. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. This was the, the transition point. Remember last week, all those untils, all those until this is what it was looking forward to. Why does it say the fullness of time? You ever wonder about that? Why did God pick when he did to send his son to be born through Mary? Now, there's a big part of us that has to confess our humanity here and say we have no clue of all the reasons. Right, God's ways are higher than ours, his ways are perfect, and we trust that. But humanly speaking, we can look at history and see some reasons that it made a lot of sense for the news of his son to spread, that he would send him when he did. What are some of those reasons? The empire had a common language. You know what it was? Greek. Okay, that's useful. Because as missionaries begin to go out, spreading the good news of Jesus. They're likely to find an audience that understands their Greek and they can talk to them about them. There was even an Old Testament translated into Greek known as the Septuagint by this point that they could refer to and say, see how this points forward to the Messiah? That was brilliant on God's part to send him at that time. There was a road system like no other. I know sometimes we talk about the Fry's parking lot and there's some parts there that need some fixing. <laughs> okay. Roads throughout history have traditionally not been that great, but when the Roman Empire came, they, they, they laid down some good roads which enabled travel for what? Missionaries and others to take the good news of Jesus across the empire with greater ease. You know what Pax Romana was under the Roman Empire? What is Pax Romana? Peace, the peace of Rome. Now, there wasn't perfect peace. Obviously, there never has been since the fall and never will be till Jesus sets up his kingdom. But relatively speaking, compared to what had gone before, things were pretty peaceful, which again 
lends itself towards travel of the gospel and for the messengers of the gospel. I just discovered this week one other thing that was going on. People were getting tired of all the Roman and Greek gods. Many people were looking at their polytheism and, and realizing they're coming up empty. Saying, I am still spiritually thirsty and hungry as I was before I started messing with Zeus and Hermes. There's got to be something more. <laughs> Again, great timing on God's part. When the fullness of time had come, and then he's going to give the qualifications of his son to be our redeemer. Okay, check this out. Number one, God sent forth his son. He is the son of God. Could any mere sinful man pay the price for the, the sins of the rest of humanity? No. For two reasons. Had to be infinite to pay that price. Only God is infinite. Okay. And second, had to be sinless. Had to be a spotless lamb of God. So he checks that one. This is not just any son. This is God's son. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, okay? Second qualification, he was born of woman. He was born of Mary in the virgin birth. Why did he have to be born a human? Guess what? Because humans were the ones that, that racked up the sin debt. So a, a human representative had to pay for that, okay? So he checks both of those, born under the law. Why was it important that he was born under that Jewish law that, that humanity has broken time and time again? Because somebody had to fulfill it, to complete it perfectly like we couldn't. And then he died for our sins, right? So why? Why did God send his son, born of woman, born under the law? What was the effect? Well, no longer are we just children of God if we trust in Christ. We're going to talk about who we are now under Christ. We are sons and, by extension, daughters of God. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. The picture is a slave block. Many masters would love to buy a slave and, and subject them to their own cruel whims, but one master showed up when we were on the sin block. So I will redeem you but not to subject you to my cruel whims to save you and set you free. That's why Jesus came, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I heard a great illustration one time. You think about justice, mercy, and grace. You could break it down like this. Let's say someone mugged my son and left him with a broken arm and a broken leg and took one of his eyes. And I'm in the courtroom. What is, what is justice for the person that did that? It's, some, it's clearly some time behind bars, right? What is mercy? It, it is if he does not get the punishment he deserves. Judge, I, and this can't happen in our court system, so obviously this is facetious, but judge, I understand what happened here. I want to show this young man mercy. I would like him to walk free. That's mercy, but what is grace? What is grace is I, I come to find out that man needs a home, and, and I talk with my family, and, and I say, we're going to adopt that young man into our family as one of our own sons. That's grace. 
We can be thankful we didn't get justice, but we didn't just get mercy either. There's great grace when God says, hey, you, you come into my family so that we might receive adoption as sons and by extension daughters. So here's where we get in the difference. What's the difference between a son in Paul's thinking or a daughter on one hand and a child? The child in this culture was the minor that we talked about, six to 16 often. But there was a, a service that would take place. We read about it right here, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, some of us know about adoption. We brought people into our families that weren't part of our nuclear family. When I was growing up, my sister Katrina was adopted like that. She was not part of our nuclear family. My parents saw the need, so let's bring her in, and now she's part of our family. That's how we think of adoption. And it happened some, sometimes that way in the Roman Empire, but it was often endued with a different significance. You could be adopted and often were in your own Roman family. What did it mean? Okay, I'm a child from 6 to 16. And earlier in the passage, it said, at a time determined by the father. That's smart. The, the father determined when it was time. That child that was natural born in the family, that son, that heir, would be adopted. You say, what does that mean? He's already part of the family. Yeah, it means he's recognized as an adult in the family with all of the rights and privileges in the estate. He can now enjoy all the rights and privileges of the estate. We talked about last week, he would take off the, the toga pretextus, the, the robe of childhood, and he would put on the toga virilis, the robe of adulthood. Why am I bringing that up here? Because Paul brings it up and he's telling us that's who we are in Christ Jesus. We are sons and daughters with full rights and privileges to the estate of God in Jesus Christ. Think of all the privileges of being an heir and all the responsibilities of being an heir. What does he say in verse 6? How do these come to us? Who applies them to our lives? The Holy Spirit. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You all know what Abba means by now, right? Papa. Daddy. It's a term that Jesus used for his own father sometimes when he prayed. It would have shocked the ears of some religious listeners to claim that kind of intimacy with God. It says through the spirit within us, he is not only holy, far above us and righteous and loving and faithful and go on and on. He's our, he's our daddy in Christ because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Why is that important? If you're like me, you go through some days where you feel the sonship or the daughtership. You go through other days where you fall on your face and you wonder, really? <laughs> really, God, you, you still got this mess? And the Spirit comes along and says, yes, he is your Abba. He is your Daddy. He is your Papa. Verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I think about how it's the Holy Spirit 
he's the one who drives these realities home in our lives. And I, I want to think about that position as a son or daughter. And I want to highlight three facets of it. That first one just simply is adoption. What comes with that adoption in, in the family? You think of the, the unconditional love. You, you think of the significance of that moment. You think of the, the security of who's doing the adopting in our case, because it's not some fickle man. It, it's God. You're adopted into the family. Think about what Jesus told his guys in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Obviously, many of them went on to write our New Testament, but I think it's valuable even for the son or daughter of God today to wake up, start the day and say, God, where are you working today? Because I want to join you in that. Would you lead me into where you're working in my world and help my eyes to be open and use me to be part of what he's doing? Romans 8.14 says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're adopted. Second one I want to talk about is freedom. We're free. I think about freedom. I think about something that's been visited many times. The Emancipation Proclamation. You know, when that document came out in our nation, officially ending the institutionalized horrors of African-American slavery in our nation, there were different responses among the slaves. Some of the slaves didn't hear it, at least right away. And so they continued on in their slavery just as before. Some of the slaves heard that, but looked at a choice between the predictability of slavery and the risks of freedom and chose to remain in slavery under their masters. But there's a third group. There was a third group that heard those freedom bells ring and said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go pursue the freedom that's available to me. Which are you today? I mean, have you come to Jesus to start? But then even as a believer, are you living in that freedom? Or have you reverted back to some form of slavery? You say, how do I know if I'm living in freedom? Well, what are some symptoms of freedom? Well, at least in my mind, one of them is joy. <laughs> Do you have joy in your life? I am free. <laughs> you can leave here with that if you didn't come in with it. You have anticipation. I'm free. What, what is God going to do in my life today as his son or daughter? What's he going to do in eternity? Do you have a great sense of potential? If you're free, you're like, whoa, all this potential in Christ. Do you think about that? Listen, I know sometimes we watch Charlton Heston or another one of those old Ten Commandment movies and we're like, oh, if I could have just lived back then and seen that, woo, that would have been awesome. But listen, Paul would say, don't think that way. You know why? Because the covenant we have today as New Testament believers is more glorious than the covenant tied to the Ten Commandments was. That's not just my words. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. 
He calls that one, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the law, the ministry of death. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The ministry of the Holy Spirit within you and I is more glorious than that ministry given at Mount Sinai. Did you know that? Are you thankful for that? And how does he describe it? Verse 17, same chapter, 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Are you walking in freedom today, believer? Do you know God wants you to be walking in freedom? You say, freedom to what? I, I like how one man put it. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. That's not always good for us. you got a fish that, uh, that I want freedom from this water. I, I want to be out in those woods. And, and he talks some, some fishermen into it, and the fisherman puts them up and leaves them in the middle of a trail and walks away. What that fish thought was freedom <laughs> was death. It's not freedom to just go out there and live in sin. What is the freedom for? Context. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's the freedom to be transformed into the image of Christ. One day it's going to be complete. It's in process right now. Are you enjoying that feeling? There's adoption. There's freedom. Now I want to talk to you about the filling of the Holy Spirit. New ability to live for God. Okay? Where does this come from? Ephesians 5, 18. What's Paul say? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Aaron hit this beautifully a couple years ago. What does it mean to be filled? Well, you have to look at the analogy of, of wine. When you drink too much wine, you are under the control of that wine. You begin to do things that you wouldn't normally do, right? For example, the guy who normally gets pulled over by the police and reaches for his registration and license off, and hands it to the officer and says, I'm sorry, sir, was I speeding? You put five glasses of wine in that guy, and he gets pull, pulled over. He, he might be the guy that's sitting there, the philosopher. <laughs> Would you like a donut? Be because your eyes look glazed over. He would never normally do that. Why is he doing it then? Because he's under the control of the alcohol. Okay, now think about the spiritual life. We are to be under the control of the spirit. That, what does that mean? It means we will live in a way that is unnatural to our sinful flesh. We will live supernaturally like Christ. We will speak encouragement where if we weren't controlled, we would have spoken discouragement. We will tell truth where we would have told a lie. We will love where we would have hated and on and on and on. It is to be controlled by the Spirit so that we act in ways unnatural to our sinful flesh, supernatural ways. 
It's a new can-do in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. It's a new dependence in our life. Romans 7, 6 says, We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You say, well, how can I be filled with the Spirit? And what does that mean anyways? Does that mean that some of us get more of the Holy Spirit than others? Like I only got half the Holy Spirit and I need more of Him? Is that what that means? No, the Holy Spirit is a person. Okay, you can't get part of a person. You got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get when you're saved. In fact, in Romans, Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? It means He gets more of you. It means He gets more of me. I surrender when He says go, and I say yes. I stop when He says no, and I say no, and I'm controlled by Him rather than my flesh. How do I, how do I live like that? Well, Jesus made it clear, right? He's the vine. We're the branches. Apart from Him, we can bear no fruit. Okay, so we've got to stay connected to Jesus. And I think about that vine. What comes through that vine? I, I, lo- I love that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. John 7, he called him a fountain of living water that comes as, into our lives. John 7, 37, as the last, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So I think about this picture. I think about being filled with the Spirit. I can't help but think about uh, a garden hose. If I go buy a garden hose at Home Depot and it's still in the package, does that hose alone have any ability to conduct water? Oh, if I take it home and try to use it as such in my front yard, the neighbor's going to say, hey, uh, Well, you got to screw that onto the spigot. That's where the water comes from. The water comes from Christ. The Holy Spirit comes from Christ. Okay, we can't work up the power to live for God on our own, but what can we do? We can stay connected to Christ in prayer, our, our, our time in the Word, relationship. Okay. Sometimes I'll be walking and I'll drag my hose too hard and what happens? The water stops and I'm like, a kink. I hate kinks. Sometimes I get like five kinks in half an hour. I hate that. So is the problem with the spigot at that point? No, what's the problem? The problem is with the hose. You get to get the kinks out of the hose, right? If our lives are like that hose, sometimes we get kinks. Problem not with the spigot. It's not with the water. It's with our lives. Maybe we're holding on to unconfessed sin. Kink. Maybe we're resisting something we know he's calling us to do. Kink, quenching, grieving, all of those. Holy Spirit, show me where I'm kinking up the hose. I want to be filled with you today so that I can be used mightily of God to accomplish the purpose he has for me today. Dr. Tony Evans really broke this down, this idea, not only of filling, but we also later on are going to talk about walking in the Spirit. I was talking with a friend about that couple weeks ago and he's like walking in the spirit it it sounds cool but what does it mean it's like so poetic you know walk in the spirit how would I know if I was walking in the spirit I thought that was a great question 
Dr. Tony Evans says, you know you're walking in the spirit by three characteristics. One characteristic of walking is has direction to it. Okay, when you go out for a walk, at least me, most of the time I have an idea of where I'm going. There's some direction. What's the direction of those walking in the spirit? It is the will of God in my life. That's the direction. Second, there is duration. This is not a walk. It, it's not some one-time thing. It's, it's ongoing, right? This is a walk. There's duration to it. it. It's something that we can come back to again and again. Can I lose the filling? Of the Spirit, yes, if I quench him. Can I confess that and say, I want to be filled again? Yes. But duration is the idea. And there's dependence. We've got to ask ourselves a hard question. Am I really relying on me, myself, and I when I walk out those doors? Or am I depending on the power of God through the Holy Spirit? And to me, one of the surest indicators is the prayer in my life. If I am dependent on God, I will live in prayer like it's oxygen. If I'm not living on prayer that way, what does it say about who I'm really depending on? We talked about adoption of the Spirit. We talked about that filling. We talked about freedom. Are you enjoying those? Specifically freedom. I'm going to close this message today where Paul does in the next few verses. He's going to urgently appeal to these Galatians. And the appeal is this. You have tasted freedom in Christ. Why are you going back? Don't go back to slavery. Verse 8. He says, formerly... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That lines up with what we said about Zeus and Hermes, right? But what happened when Paul came and preached the gospel? Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, what is he talking about there? Is he talking about they learned some facts so they could pass a quiz about God? That's not the Greek word he's using for know here. He's saying you have come to know God personally, experientially, in a relationship, and more than that, to be known by God. He knows you that same way. You have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. Why are you going back to legalistic law-keeping? What are you thinking? What a horrible trade to enjoy that relationship with God or, or think you've got to go back to doing it yourself again. One man broke it down this way, the story of the prodigal son. We all understand that he didn't feel he deserved to be a son when he came back. So we understand with him when he said, hey, don't make me a son, just make me a servant, right? We, we get that. But it's been pointed out, it's a whole other thing. If you know both options are on the table, slave and son, and you choose slave over son, stupid. <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> Why? 
Why? You have this personal relationship going with God. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And here we know he's talking about the, the law of Moses because that's what the Judaizers are trying to get him into. I already told you that law is weak. It cannot save you. It can only show you your need for a savior. You've got a risen Lord. You're going back to a weak law. You've got a Christ who all the promises of God are yes in him, and you're going back to worthless elementary principles. What are you thinking? What, what were they doing? Verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You say, what's that about? Well, most believe they were putting themselves back under the Jewish law again in a legalistic manner. I've got to follow that Saturday Sabbath. I've, months, I've got to celebrate that new moon. Seasons, the longer feast, the, the Passover, the Pentecost. I've got to observe those years, jubilee years, when they exchange the land back and everything. Now, let me ask you a question. As a Christian, is it wrong to celebrate those? No. What matters is the why. What matters is the why. If you celebrate those in a way that acknowledges those all point forward to Christ, and I love now that I see the significance, I praise him because of how that Passover pointed to him. That can be beneficial. How many of you have sat in on one of those feasts and, and learned how it pointed to Christ? I have. What is he railing against here? If you put yourself back underneath that in an attempt to earn God's favor when you already have God's grace, that's why he's like, what are you all doing? Why are you all going backwards? Verse 11, maybe you said this to someone you love. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You hear his heart. He wants them to taste freedom, and it's theirs for the tasting. But they've chosen the path of slavery. Now I want to ask us a couple questions as we close to make this practical. Believers, are you living in the freedom of Christ? Are you going back again to slavery? How do we go back? It's like I said, we put ourselves under that legalistic law in some attempt to earn God's favor. You think about why do people go back? Why would you? Right? Well, I thought about a, a couple of things. One is there's security sometimes in an external list of rules, right? Hey, sure, it's big, but at least I can see it, and I can kind of try to keep my external behavior at least looking good. This becoming like Jesus, on the other hand, through the power of the Spirit, I don't know where all he's going to lead me. You know, at least the, the rules are clear. Warren Wearsby was one that pointed out the trouble with legalism is it's often presented in such a way that, hey, this is the path to maturity. But what Paul's telling us is it's actually a path backwards. It's a path from sonship and daughtership back to childhood, and it is slavery. I, I think about that, hey, at least I can see it and it's there. And I think about the fact that I took the boys out fishing yesterday. I left the men's group and I told the men we were going fishing and I fully expected another fruitless day because that's what we usually have fishing. <laughs> but yesterday we caught four. 
We caught two catfish and two little fish. I don't even know what they were. It was great, but we noticed the second catfish looked a lot like the first catfish. May have been the same catfish, and we got to talking like, okay, I know we got hot dogs on there, but why would the same fish, <laughs> after everything he just went through, <laughs> go for that same hook again, right? I'm no fish psychologist, but put myself in the water. I'm like, hey, it's just hanging there. You know, everything else in here I got to chase. <laughs> it's predictable. I see it right there. <laughs> Don't put yourself under slavery again because it's predictable. Slavery is slavery whether it's predictable or not. Another reason I think sometimes we struggle to really believe the, the fullness of the payment of Jesus Christ, maybe not for the person next to me, but for me. Because I, I know my life. Like I know where I've been and what I've said and what I've done and that can't be for me. I can't believe when he said it is finished. That covers me, past, present, and future. I think about that, and I think about our son, Evan. He's in a PGA Junior League at the Antelope Hills Golf Course with his cousin, Caleb. And one thing that you get to do with that, when you go into the driving range, you can, you can show them this at the, the counter and say, hey, I'd like a free bucket of large balls. And and they'll give you a free bucket of large golf balls, normally $8. $8. Now, I thought Evan could go in there, leave this at home, and, and pay with his own allowance, right? But that'd be stupid, right? He wouldn't do that. Why? Because mom and dad have already covered the cost of that through this golf camp. He's going to use what's been paid for. Same thing, listen, Christian, when we find ourselves just whipping ourselves over and over about past sins, present sins, future sins, not believing they're forgiven, believing we got to do something to pay for them. Say, why wouldn't you accept the payment that the Father has provided in Christ? You're free. You're free. Now, let's be careful here. Does he sometimes come and convict us, discipline us to get us to turn around? Yeah, but that's different than condemnation. That's different than the guilt that Christ paid for. The other thing I think about, why will we go back to spiritual childhood from spiritual adulthood? Well, have you ever heard the phrase, adulting is hard? I have. Like I said, my cousin, my sister, excuse me, posted one recently. She said, I remember when I was a kid and my bedtime was nine and I always thought about how, man, when I get older, I'm going to stay up as late as I want. Turns out it's nine. <laughs> most, most kids don't know what all goes into uh, adulting, right? Or what about, like, I saw another one that said, nobody told me that one, there was going to be one day in my life where I woke up tired and I was just going to stay that way for the rest of my life. <laughs> Why am I bringing that up here? Adulting is hard. Well, when we are son and our daughter in God's estate, there's not just privileges there. There are responsibilities that, that go along with that privilege. And we can't live them out on our own. We can only live them out in the Holy Spirit, but they are weighty.
to use his inheritance wisely, our time, our, our treasure, and our talent for him and in his kingdom. Sometimes to defend the estate from lies or other attacks. To go out and invite others in to the estate, just like you and I were invited. To be like our Father. Father who is holy. A Father who is merciful. Not to mention that's when the persecution sets in. When we hold on to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read the book of Galatians closely, Paul says some of these false teachers went away from the cross so that they wouldn't be persecuted. It's more acceptable to teach man-powered religion than it is to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. When you think about it, it takes a lot of sweat and work to keep up a, a whitewashed tomb with dead bones inside, right? But listen, when we want to become more like Christ, while we can't do it on our own, it takes us to Romans 12. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Some of us don't want to pay that price. Let me ask a question to the believers in the room. Are you walking, enjoying the freedom of Jesus Christ fully this morning? Joy, anticipation, potential, would that describe your walk? Or have you gone back to slavery? Some of you might be saying, hey, well, what's the difference between legalism and obedience to God? Is obedience still a thing? Yes. Yes, what's the difference? I'm going to give you three thresholds to measure. One is the source of what it is you're obeying. Is the source God and specifically what New Testament Christians are called to? Yes, obey him. Okay, but is it tradition or pleasing someone else that's hoisting someone on you or something you've hoisted on yourself? Source, motive. Why am I obeying? Is it some legalistic attempt to earn grace? from God stop that's slavery it's weak and it's powerless or is it obedient love for him Jesus said if you love me you'll obey me so sometimes rather than going to the list of things we've done or not done maybe we ought to ask the question do I love Jesus with all of my heart soul mind and strength today and whose power are you doing it in? Is it you? You just going out there doing your best? Or are you depending on the Spirit? Are you praying? Are you filling yourself with the word he inspired and saying, help me now. I can't do this without you. John 3.8 says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. They say, what's going to happen if I'm led by the Spirit? Well, I can tell you two things for sure. Number one, you're going you're gonna to glorify Christ. 
How do I know that? John 16, verse 14, when he told the disciples, I'm sending another helper, he says, he will glorify me. You will bring glory to Christ in your words, your actions, your lives. And you will be more like the Father. How do I know that? Because the same chapter in Ephesians 5, where it talked about being filled with the Spirit, you know what the first verse was? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Might freedom be scary and unpredictable at times? Yes. Yes, but I always go back to a phrase that always resonated with me. I can't remember who wrote it. It's a phrase that says, Boats are not meant to sit in the dock. That, that's not why they were made. They're, they're meant to experience the open seas. Right? When the restlessness begins to outweigh the fear, sometimes that's where we say, Okay, Lord. That's where I want us all as believers to say, let's go, Lord. Help me walk in your freedom today and spread the good news of that freedom to those around me. Lord, I thank you for Paul's challenge here. We can look at the Galatians and shake our heads all day long and say, why would they go back? But really, I think what you want us to do is, is there any place I've traded your freedom in Christ for some other form of slavery? Help us to choose to be led by the Spirit than the predictability of legalistic slavery. Help us to trust you with the outcomes. The Almighty God, same, Paul who, same God who led the Apostle Paul on his journeys is leading his children today. Help us to live with joy this, this morning. Break down anything hindering that joy in the lives of your sons and daughters. Help us to live with anticipation and a great sense of the potential when you're at work in a work that you promise you would not complete until the day of redemption. Lord, may we be those who have Son of God, Daughter of God emblazoned on our souls confident that you will never let us go, confident that's who we are, and that in the spirit you've blessed us with, we can live that out today. Help us use even the offering that comes in these next few moments for that purpose as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.